Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will continue our discussion of Genesis chapter 19, picking up the text in verse 23. We read here in this verse, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived." So we're looking at verses 23 to 29 to begin with. We may move on beyond that. And we're looking at this further principle. We've looked first in verses 1 to 14 that God warns his people that he will destroy their world because of its grievous sin. Then in verses 15 to 22, the influence of the world can be alluring to a believer, but it is nonetheless contemptible, evil in the sight of God. Uh, now today in verses 23 to 29, we learn this, that God will preserve the righteous from the destruction of their world. And what we see here, you've just heard it in the text, is first of all, the Lord finally destroys the wicked in their place. He brings about his word just as he has said that he would. So verses 23 to 26 give us this account. And it's exactly what the Lord said he would do. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, the two that are mentioned there, Sodom and Gomorrah and all the valley, the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So livestock, all, uh, livestock and plant life, all those things are just absolutely, utterly and totally destroyed. So it's finally and quickly brought to a complete ruin. And sadly, this includes Lot's wife. And to understand this, we have to understand that the Lord means what he says. And so uh, we see this. Back in verse 17, they bring Lot out and they say to him, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Then, of course, he has that argument, and it's hard to say, you know, did he convey this to others? Well, it seems to be, I mean, if you're hearing these types of things go on and it's out of the ordinary, one would probably be tempted to look back and see what has happened. I mean, that is kind of the nature of us all. You think about it, if you live in a city or something like that and you hear a siren, unless, you know, you're in a place like Minneapolis or New York City or some big, huge metro area where sirens are just all the time, 
But if you don't hear sirens all the time, typically when you hear one, you're going to look up and take notice. Uh, I know for me, and I, I don't know if this is for everybody, but if I'm outside doing yard work and I hear a helicopter, not so much a plane, but a helicopter, I don't know what it is about that, especially if it's flying a little bit lower, very easy to uh, distinguish that sound. Then I always am looking up to see what it is. You know, you hear a sound and you want to see what it is. Well, when the Lord rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, you think that's not going to make a sound? Of course it is. So I I think we can kind of infer from the context here that everybody knew the angels are giving this, um, you know, they're, they're giving this warning to Lot earlier, but the fact that his daughters don't turn around when they too would be tempted Lot knows what's at risk. He's not wanting his family to perish. Chances are pretty good, just kind of in context here, that at least the four of them understood what was at stake, or at least understood the warning. Maybe they didn't understand the consequences, uh, but they knew the warning. But remember, all they're told is do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. That could be interpreted... I've got to get up to the high ground here to the hills because the destruction is going to come on the low part. Maybe they're not thinking that destruction will come upon me if I stop and look back. Uh, Nevertheless, the warning was don't look. I mean, it's very, very clear. And this gives us just a little bit of insight by way of side note as well, uh, that language has meaning, right? I mean, uh, not everything can be allegorized and spiritualized in the text of Scripture. This is what is in view when we talk about a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. And we come back to this from time to time. Uh, you know, uh, people who hold to this uh, often get mocked by their Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, again, notice how I frame that. I do believe that many of my Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, you know, they can be Presbyterian. I'm not saying all Presbyterians are true believers. Neither am I saying all Baptists are either. Uh, You know, we've got people who are not just wolves in sheep's clothing, but people who don't really know. Uh, We have terrors in the church among the wheat, people who, you know, the seed has fallen on the stony ground of their heart. They're not really saved. Uh, So, you know, I'm not talking about that, but I believe that there are genuine believers Uh, who hold to the fundamentals of the faith, who disagree on secondary and tertiary doctrines. And, you know, I'm not mocking them. I I don't think that they're correct, uh, but they do. I, I, at least I, I've, you know, anecdotally, this is just, and that is just a fancy word that means I've experienced this personally. Uh, I have had brothers and sisters, uh, more brothers than sisters, in the Presbyterian circles, not all of them, but I've had many openly mock me for my hermeneutical position. And I think that's very, very uncharitable. It's very unkind. Um, I'm not going to, you know, return the mocking or, you know, any of those things. I, I think that, you know, is that really how Christ has called us to, uh, to act as Christians? Uh, but again, uh, they, they do openly mock some. I'm not saying all, but some do. And they make fun of the position, and a lot of times they'll do this, and this is a very, it's a, it's a logical fallacy. They'll say something like, oh, you believe in a literal hermeneutic, and so you read in the prophet Isaiah that the trees clap your hands. You must be stupid. You think that trees actually have hands. 
Uh, no, I don't believe trees actually have hands, and I don't believe they're going to clap them, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about anthropomorphization here, and this is something that is done in poetry. Uh, and, you know, you'll give credit to a non-biblical source and say, oh, well, that's just poetry. And so we have license and expression and speech to be able to do something like that, to anthropomorphize something and to give it human characteristics. Uh, but no, they won't allow the same within the Bible. A literal hermeneutic just means that we take it in the sense that it is intended. So if we're given poetry, we take it as poetry. If we're given historical narrative, we take it as historical narrative. If we're given prophecy, again, uh, no prophecy is given as just something spiritual. All the prophecies that we've looked at even up to this point in Genesis 19 have been fulfilled literally, <laughs> literally. I mean, no one's going to look at the proto-gospel in Genesis 3.15 and say, that is not real, right? Of course it's real. The seed of the woman. We're talking about a descendant from the woman, a child that was be, to be born uh, from her and somewhere down the line. She probably thought it was in the first generation. They're looking to uh, Abel. They're looking to Seth afterwards. Obviously, Cain's out of the picture. <laughs> you know, he's out of the running, at least in this point, to, to be the contender here. Uh, but they're looking at this in a literal way, that she's going to have a literal descendant who's going to, you know, and there's some language there, uh, crush the head. Well, that obviously means death. He's going to overthrow this enemy of Satan. Uh, we understand that. When God says that he's going to bring destruction on the earth and he warns the people through Noah, but specifically Noah, and commands him to build an ark, that's not a spiritual command. It's not a spiritual ark. Now, it's a type. You know, the, the literal ark of Noah is a type of salvation where he is truly and literally saved from a physical judgment on the earth. But there is an ark of salvation that lasts e eternally, and that's the ark of salvation that is found in Christ. You know, so we get these things. But the point is, is when he tells Noah to build an ark, that's a real literal ark. When he tells Noah he's going to bring a flood upon the world, it's a real literal flood. When he says he's going to destroy all life uh, that has breath in it, right? So we're not talking about fish of the sea necessarily, but everything that has the breath of life in it, all air-breathing mammals and, and birds and all those things, unless they were on the ark, they're all going to die. And that's literally fulfilled. And of course, when he says he's going to throw overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah, the you know the promise is literal. When he says to Abraham and Sarah just prior to this that I'm going to give you a son, and then they misunderstand that and try and reinterpret it to their own understanding, that needs correction. You know, Ishmael is a product of that, and they're trying to figure it out. Now he has to come down and spell it out in plain, simple language. This is what I mean by that. You, Sarah, are going to have a child not through somebody else, you yourself, your body will produce this child. And, and at which point the lights go on and she's like, huh, what are you kidding me? And then she laughs and we've discussed that because it's literal. They take it as God intended. God, God gives literal instructions. And, and I bring this all about here in this discussion to say this, that when the Lord gave the warning and the angels are warning Lot, and they say, do not look back. Do we just simply take that as spiritual? Well, chances are that if you have a conservative view of Genesis, 
as I do, then you're going to say no. And the reason you're going to say no, that you don't just take that as a spiritual command is because of what we encounter here in uh, verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, if you didn't have that commentary, you might be tempted to think that that wasn't a real literal command. But we have the commentary. We have the, the command in verse 17 that says, don't look back. And then we have the commentary. This is now history, right? This is just historical narrative that all she did, you know, she was behind him. We have the location, but we have the disobedience from the command. She looked back and then we have the price that is paid. She became a pillar of salt, which means she died. She forfeited her life. And even in the simple, small, inconsequential things, or seemingly, I should say, inconsequential things, God means what he says. Now, this, this is going to come back later on, right? We're going to encounter this type of scenario where people have objections, not in the book of Genesis, but when the ark is, has been taken by the enemies, and now it's coming back and uh, into the land of, of Israel, and as it's returning, they stick it on a cart. It's not supposed to be transported on a cart, which, by the way, is a key understanding in all this. It's not supposed to be there, which shows that they don't have quite the familiarity with the word of God that they were supposed to. There are people accompanying it along the way, right? This is all recorded for us in Second Samuel chapter 6. Uh, starting there in verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, David rose and went with all the people who were with him up to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by name the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, this is a problem, <laughs> and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah, or Uzzah, Uzzah, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ohio went before the ark and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs, lyres, harps, tambourines, uh, castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of the Lord. And notice this, and this is people's objection, right? It's the same as David's. This is Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Okay, so the point is, is, you know, sometimes we tend to pick and choose, and we say this is seemingly so insignificant that it doesn't really matter. And yet these things really did matter. And so when God gave specific instructions, uh, you know, as to not only how the tabernacle was to be built, and of course the tabernacle is still in play here because David wants to build a permanent dwelling place, a temple, but the Lord forbids him to do that. So the tabernacle is still in play. But while he's giving instructions for the tabernacle, this is found in the book of Exodus, you know, there, there are some things that kind of sneak up on you there, right? Uh, towards the end in Exodus chapter 37, 
we're told earlier how they're supposed to make the ark, and then 37, chapter 37, records for us the actual making of the ark, right? And so we, we read this, uh, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half, half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold, okay, so forth. He cast it, now listen here, verse 3 of chapter 37, he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. Ah, those rings are important. Verse 4, and he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark. There it is. That's how it's supposed to be transported, right there. Exodus chapter 37, uh, verse 5, verses 4 and 5. And so then, you know, that's that's how it's supposed to be. You know, we, we see later how it gets broken down and, and how they would, you know, move. The end of the book of Exodus tells us how it's all finally put together and it's all, it's all done correctly. Aaron is consecrated for the priesthood and everything is done and it says here in Exodus 40, uh, verse 32, so Moses finished the work. Then the glory of the Lord comes. Uh, I guess that's verse 33, sorry. The glory of the Lord comes. A cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is Shekinah glory. And, you know, skipping on here to the very last verses, verse 36 of chapter 40, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, fire by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So, you know, we're told, and we have to piece all this together, that the way that the ark was made by just by how it was made dictates how it is to be transported. It was made and fashioned with the rings on the side of it so that poles could be slipped through those rings and it could be carried by uh, the priests. Uh, the poles, and notice that when you put the poles on through the rings, you never actually touch the ark itself. And that way it could be lifted onto the shoulders and because it was forbidden to touch the ark. And so when Uzzah does that, the Lord strikes him. David's angry and we might be tempted to be angry too, but the fact of the matter is, is that when God says something, even if it's seemingly small and inconsequential, we would do well to pay attention. And so far, I mean, God means what he says down to the smallest thing, which by the way, just by way of application means that if Jesus says, <laughs> when he's answering Thomas's question in John chapter 14, right? He says, I'm going away. It's necessary that I do that. And in my house are many, in my father's house are, are many rooms, many mansions. I go away uh, to prepare a place for you. And he says, and you know the way. And then Thomas speaks up and he says, Lord, we do not know the way. How, how, how will we know? And Jesus answers. And aren't you glad that Thomas asked the question? Because then the answer is, you know, a, a great hope and promise that we as believers cling to. It's something that we use when we're, declaring the gospel. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now listen to what he says carefully. No man comes to the Father but through me. Does he mean what he says in something like that? Yes, he does. Now, most Orthodox believers, most Orthodox Christians are not going to have a problem with that statement. 
but you don't get to pick and choose, right? If he says, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant or you die, then you die. And if he says to Lot and his family, don't look back, lest you perish, then you don't look back. doesn't matter what your ears are telling you, you don't look back. And so we have to understand that. Now, if Jesus says that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus, then, then it doesn't matter the emotional plea that you might hear from somebody saying, listen, you know, I know my, my spouse is an unbeliever. You know, they don't acknowledge Jesus or the exclusivity of Jesus. You know, let's say that they're a, you know, a polytheist. They believe in many gods and Jesus is just one of their many, many gods. You know, can you really tell me, you know, I, I had a discussion like this this summer, believe it or not. I was talking with somebody and, and they were very concerned about their spouse because, uh, you know, the spouse did not acknowledge salvation through Christ alone and came from a different religion, Buddhist actually, and said, you know, very nice person, very moral and upright and, you know, very pleasant to be around. That's all well and good. Well, you can't really think that God is going to send my spouse to, to hell and that they would be eternally condemned. You know, and I don't like to, at that point, jump in and say, and be harsh, but I say, here's the, the words of scripture. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man, no one can come to the Father but by me. So very, very important things uh, to to take into account here. So we've kind of hit that from all angles, but remember, as we bring it back to this text in verses 23 to 29, not only do we learn that the God will preserve the righteous from the destruction of their world, but what we see here by way of application is that we know that God has warned of a coming day of judgment. And the application is, is that God will preserve the righteous from that coming day of destruction as well. And that's really, really key uh, in both this and even in the flood narrative back in Genesis chapters 6 through 8. We learn this incredibly important lesson, and, and we would do well to consider it, that God preserves his own people when he brings divine judgment. We're not talking about persecution. We're not talking about affliction at the hands of men. We're talking when God rains down divine judgment, whether it's on the globe or on a people, he will preserve the righteous. And this is, it's a hope for me. Apparently other people don't find this as hopeful, especially if they differ in eschatology. But with regards to God's coming final terrible day of judgment, I do believe that that's literal because he has said it, and he hasn't said it in poetry fashion. He has not said it in a way that could be misconstrued. It is very physical, very literal. He is going to bring this down just as he has brought down physical, literal judgment on the world in the past. But he's also told us very, very specifically, not just in one place, although one would be enough, but in other places, that if you are, belong to him and you are one of his chosen ones, then you are not appointed for the day of wrath. That's not the wrath of man. That's God's wrath. You are not appointed for that. Uh, he says to the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 that they will be spared. If they continue to be faithful, they will be spared from the hour of trial that is about to come on the whole world. 
And so very, very important for us to consider those things. Well, we've gone over, so we'll stop there and pick it up in verses 30 to 38 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.